Welcome back to the History of Nazi Germany. I'm Stephen Remy. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. This podcast series supports my course, History 3242, Nazi Germany. This is Episode 8, War 1939-1942. In hindsight, it's easy to assume that the defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945 was inevitable, particularly when the Soviet Union survived the German invasion in 1941 and the United States entered the war. But the victory of the alliance between Great Britain, the Soviet Union, and the United States was not inevitable. It was actually a close call. Between 1939 and 1942, Germany conquered or otherwise gained control over nearly all of Europe. In the same period, Imperial Japan had taken control of a substantial part of China and most of Southeast Asia, and then threatened India. Allied victory in Europe and Asia was achieved on multiple fronts. In this and in the next episode, I'll discuss the war in Europe in two stages. The first covers the years of Nazi Germany's major victories, 1939 to 1942. The second, which I'll turn to in episode nine, covers the years leading up to Germany's final defeat and occupation in May 1945. How did Nazi Germany wage war? And in particular, how did Nazi ideology influence Germany's conduct of the war? In what ways was Germany's war an imperial war? How did the Germans rule its empire in Europe? How did the Allies win? And how did Germany lose? What was life like for ordinary Germans on the home front? As you know, in August 1939, Germany and the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact. This made it possible for Hitler to invade Poland and then attack Western Europe without having to fight a war on two fronts. On September 1st, 1939, after staging a fake attack by Polish troops on German territory, 1.5 million German soldiers invaded Poland. Soviet forces invaded on September 17th. The state of Poland ceased to exist. Hitler wanted to turn right around and invade Western Europe, but his military commanders convinced him to wait until the spring of 1940. What followed became known as the Phony War, the period during which British, French, and German armies did not engage each other in Western Europe or over the British Isles. The reluctance of his generals enraged Hitler. In his mind, the window of opportunity to invade the Soviet Union was closing fast, and it had to be preceded by the conquest of Western Europe, especially France, and hence control of the English Channel coast. He also had to subdue Britain one way or the other. It would be worsening weather, rain and mud were the two biggest problems that forced Hitler to postpone the invasion of Western Europe until the spring. And there was another serious problem. The German public's enthusiasm for war in the West was clearly lacking. Melita Maschmann's recollections of her response to hearing that Germany was at war was typical of most Germans. The delay ultimately worked to Hitler's advantage as it made a surge in arms production possible. It had the opposite effect on French forces, unwilling to take offensive action 
discipline eroded as they waited. The period of the phony war was hardly as quiet as the term suggests. Germany's war on Poland's elite and Jewish population was just beginning, as was the mobilization of the Polish underground army, which numbered around 100,000 fighters by mid-1940. On September 17, 1939, Soviet forces invaded Poland from the east, initiating Joseph Stalin's war of revenge against the Poles. After the government of Finland refused to agree to Stalin's demands for territorial concessions, Soviet forces invaded the country on November 29th, though here the Finns fought the Red Army to a standstill. What would become a titanic battle for control of the Atlantic Ocean began almost immediately after Germany invaded Poland. German aggression in the Atlantic had another important result in this period. The passage of so-called cash-and-carry legislation by the United States Congress in late October and early November. The legislation represented a major revision of the Neutrality Act of 1937, which had expired in May 1939, by allowing the sale of arms to a belligerent able to pay cash and pick up the merchandise. Easing the bill's passage was the swing in public opinion against Germany and the neutrality laws when a month earlier a German battleship captured an American cargo ship. The phony war ended in April 1940. German forces struck Denmark and Norway. The Danish government capitulated in two hours. Norway was a different matter. There were sound strategic reasons for Germany to occupy both countries. Despite its small size, Denmark was an important supplier of foodstuffs and concrete. Sweden was important because it supplied Germany with high-quality iron ore. So control of Norway's long North Sea coastline would allow Germany to protect critically important shipments of iron ore in case of a British naval blockade. Norway's deep natural harbors, called fjords, also provided excellent bases for submarines. There was, in addition, an ideological dimension to Hitler's thinking. He and SS ideologues considered Scandinavian peoples to be racially Germanic, and they envisioned their ultimate absorption into what Hitler told Joseph Goebbels would be a Germanic Reich or empire. Norway was a much tougher fight. German naval forces suffered some significant losses, and for a few months, Norwegian forces joined by a detachment of British troops put up tenacious resistance on the ground. But the Germans soon secured control of the country. And that meant continued shipments of Swedish iron ore for the rest of the war. Next were the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, known collectively as the Low Countries. They were occupied in less than a month. Then came the real shocker. To most people's astonishment, the French army was defeated in six weeks. Hitler had ordered a daring attack through the densely wooded Ardennes region of southern Belgium that succeeded in cutting off a British expeditionary force in northern France before turning south.
most members of this expeditionary force were rescued from the coastal town of Dunkirk. French resistance crumbled and German troops entered Paris on June 14th. Hitler had achieved his greatest military victory and reached the high point of his popularity and power in Germany. France was divided into two zones. One included Paris, the north of the country, and an Atlantic coastal zone. Germany occupied this zone. The second was the rest of the country, the center and the south. This zone was administered by a collaborationist regime based in the spa town of Vichy. Hitler's treatment of France was, at first, surprisingly lenient. He treaded with care after having bungled the installation of a pro-German government in Norway that the majority of Norwegians never accepted as legitimate. In France, it was essential that the new French government be supported by the majority and that the empire remain loyal to the Vichy regime. As for what to do with France, Hitler envisioned an economically weakened and politically decentralized state that was subservient to Germany. He annexed a borderland territory called Alsace-Lorraine to Germany, but otherwise made no other territorial changes. And the Vichy regime proved to be a willing collaborator, particularly when it came to rounding up and deporting Jews. Hitler now expected the British government to come to terms. Though he had ordered the military to begin preparing for a cross-channel invasion, codenamed Sea Lion, he wanted to give London one last chance to negotiate a settlement without fighting. Concluding the war with Great Britain one way or another was becoming a matter of urgency as Hitler contemplated the possibility of the United States entering the war or of the Soviet Union abandoning the non-aggression pact. But the British government, now led by Winston Churchill, stayed in the war. Given that the German Navy did not have the capabilities to execute Sea Lion, and in any case Hitler did not really intend to attempt it, everything hinged on the German Air Force's ability to destroy the British Air Force and bomb Great Britain out of the war. The Battle of Britain was on. It began as a duel between British and German fighter planes over the southern England and the English Channel. By mid-September, German losses had become unsustainable. A crucial factor in Britain's favor was that British engineers had built the world's first integrated air defense system. A network of radar stations transmitted by telephone lines, real-time information on the positions of enemy planes to control centers. These control centers then relayed the information to pilots. But there was more. In the 1930s, British engineers built a new fighter plane, the Spitfire. It was beautiful, it was fast, and it could outfight anything in its class. German military officials admitted that they had totally underestimated it. Broadly speaking, the Luftwaffe's, that's the German Air Force, targets were the Royal Air Force and its bases, English ports, and storehouses of food. Poor weather delayed larger scale attacks until the middle of August. The first bombing raids on residential areas of London 
on August 24th did not go unanswered. The Royal Air Force responded the next day with its first raid on Berlin. And enraged, Hitler promised retaliation on a massive scale and ordered more attacks on London and other cities. As the Battle of Britain wound down in mid-September, Hitler ordered Sea Lion postponed indefinitely. At the same time, what became known as the Blitz, the terror bombing of British cities intensified. London was subjected to nightly attacks, 71 in total. 15 other British cities were targeted during the entire ordeal, which lasted for 267 days and killed 42,000 people. Far more lives would have been lost had the British not mobilized an extraordinary array of successful civilian protection measures, including the relocation of 1.5 million citizens, most of them children, to the countryside. The failure to subdue Britain in the fall of 1940 had major strategic repercussions around the world. Hitler accelerated his plans for an invasion of the Soviet Union. An added incentive was U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's interesting destroyer for bases deal with Britain in early September 1940. This arrangement traded American access to British bases in the Atlantic and Caribbean for 50 obsolete destroyers. To Hitler, it was a warning signal that the Americans might soon more fully enter the war. Then Hitler was faced with an unexpected problem. His ally, Benito Mussolini, had invaded Greece, a blunder that required a German military bailout. Italian incompetence also required Hitler's intervention in North Africa. In December 1940, a crack British Indian force managed, despite being vastly outnumbered, to halt an Italian invasion of Egypt from Libya. Meanwhile, the British Navy inflicted severe damage on the Italian fleet in the Mediterranean. The end of Mussolini's imperial venture in Africa came in April and May 1941, after British-led African troops liberated Abyssinia, Eritrea, and the Italian Somaliland. A deeply disappointed Hitler dispatched one of his most brilliant generals to Libya to regain control of North Africa. The general, Erwin Rommel, nearly succeeded until his forces were defeated decisively in November 1942. When it came to the Balkans in southeastern Europe, Hitler did not envision a German invasion and occupation. This only came about thanks to Mussolini's bungled invasion of Greece. In Greece, Mussolini's inadequately numbered and unprepared forces met fierce resistance in the mountainous terrain. Assisted by the British Air Force, Greek forces had driven the Italians back to Albania by December. The following April, that's April 1941, after taking control of Romania and invading Yugoslavia, German forces invaded Greece and occupied Athens by the end of the month. The country was divided into German, Italian, and Bulgarian occupation zones and governed in name only by a collaborationist regime. Like Poland and Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia was dismembered and ceased to exist. 
German victory in the Balkans in the spring of 1941 was swift and, as it turned out, Hitler's final successful campaign in Europe. But the operations and the ensuing occupations were costly, unwanted distractions for Hitler. The most important target remained the Soviet Union. The invasion had to begin as soon as possible and quick victory was essential. The U.S. was officially neutral, though Franklin Roosevelt was taking an increasingly strident anti-German position and was finding ways to increase material assistance to Britain. Hitler also predicted that a rapid victory in the East would finally force the British out of the war. In this scenario, Germany would gain control of the entire Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf. The German army, having done its job, long-range bombers and a massive buildup of German naval forces could then begin. Bases in West Africa and on Atlantic islands would secure German control of the Atlantic Ocean. All of Europe, North and West Africa, and the Middle East would be invulnerable to American intervention. On December 16, 1940, Hitler had ordered Operation Barbarossa to be launched in mid-May 1941. This was the code name for the invasion of the Soviet Union. It was named in honor of a German national hero, the 12th century Holy Roman Emperor Friedrich Barbarossa, or Friedrich I. From the planning stages, Operation Barbarossa was a criminal enterprise on a massive scale, the greatest single war crime ever committed Hitler was driven by more than strategic calculations. Barbarossa was planned and executed based on his twin core obsessions, obtaining so-called living space in the East, and his belief that the communist regime in Moscow was at the center of a conspiracy by Jews to destroy Germany and take over the world. Hitler ordered what he called the Jewish Bolshevik intelligentsia to be exterminated. This was known as the Commissar Order. Further guidelines laid out plans for a war of unrestrained brutality in which distinctions between uniformed combatants and civilians were erased. As one German general noted at the time, the war in the East would be completely different from the war in the West. A month before the invasion, the German army, the Wehrmacht, and the SS worked out respective spheres of operation. On Hitler's orders, SS leader Heinrich Himmler organized the deployment of SS task forces called Einsatzgruppen to follow the army into the Soviet Union. Einsatzgruppen were mobile execution squads. They would operate behind the front lines independently of, but in coordination with the army. They were directed to eliminate any form of real or suspected civilian opposition. Specifically, they were ordered to kill so-called Jewish Bolsheviks. But by the late summer of 1941, in some areas, they were murdering every Jewish person they encountered. The date for the attack was moved to June 22nd. Hitler expected the war to last four months. Operation Barbarossa was the single largest military operation of its kind in history. Four million troops attacked along a massive front. 
the invasion force was divided into three groups aimed at Leningrad in the north, Moscow in the center, and Ukraine in the south. The objective was to take control of the entire territory from Archangel to Astrakhan. In the invasion's initial phase, Hitler prioritized the capture of Leningrad and Ukraine over Moscow. It nearly succeeded. Soviet leader Joseph Stalin ignored multiple reliable intelligence reports that an invasion was imminent. The Red Army's initial losses of men, five million casualties and material were staggering and seemingly catastrophic. By August, German forces were approaching Leningrad. In September and October, Kiev and Odessa were captured. By early December, German soldiers on the front line could see Moscow's skyline. But Stalin could draw upon a practically unlimited supply of reinforcements from the east, and Moscow remained in Russian hands. German forces, their supply lines stretched thin and unprepared for the brutal Russian winter, dug in. Barbarossa had failed and the Eastern Front had been created. Over two long, destructive years of war lay ahead. To manage and exploit the territory that was conquered, the Germans created two massive civilian-run occupation zones. One was called Ostland, encompassing the Baltics and Western Belarus. The other was for Ukraine. Behind the lines, Himmler's SS task forces initiated what would become the first stage of the Holocaust, now often referred to by historians as the Holocaust by bullets. When Hitler thought of living space for the German people, he imagined the vast territories of the European Soviet Union, above all Poland, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. Once conquered, the East would be transformed into a so-called Garden of Eden, where millions of healthy German farmers would live in bucolic towns, farming with the most modern machinery, their communities connected by superhighways and high-speed rail networks. It was a vision that illustrated the combination of the modern and the reactionary in Nazi ideology. As for the millions of Russians, Ukrainians, and other ethnic groups already populating the region, they would be enslaved and allowed to die off. The industrial cities built by Stalin would be depopulated by deportation and starvation. Hitler even envisioned a version of contemporary anti-vaccination campaigns. Russians and Ukrainians would be told that vaccinations would actually harm rather than protect their children, thus increasing the death rate. The harvests of Russian and Ukrainian farmland used to feed German settlers and soldiers, and of course, the German home front. This was known as the hunger plan. The entire mad scheme was formalized as the general plan for the East. Other than Hitler, its most enthusiastic proponent was Heinrich Himmler. Two days after the launch of Operation Barbarossa, he set, up, he set a group of talented young academics in the SS to work on drawing up the plans. Hitler approved a revised version of it a year later. Some 30 or more million people were to be uprooted. Jews were included in the estimates. With the objective of Germanizing much of Eastern Europe in a single generation's lifespan. The remaining population would be enslaved in some fashion 
or murdered or Germanized if their physical appearances bore a close enough match to the Aryan ideal. Now, any chance of realizing this plan depended above all upon German victory in Russia. And that never came. The mobilization of Soviet society against the German invasion was the single most important factor that explains Allied victory and Germany's final defeat. But final defeat was still years away. Despite the fact that Britain and the Soviet Union were still in the war, Germany's prospects still looked promising at the beginning of 1942. Germany and its allies controlled most of Europe. The German Navy was sending hundreds of British ships and millions of tons of shipping to the bottoms of the Mediterranean Sea and Atlantic Ocean. In late 1941 and early 1942, Japan began a massive offensive in Southeast Asia, capturing the Philippines, Indonesia, and the Malayan Peninsula, including the crucial city of Singapore. This new Japanese offensive included an attack on U.S. naval bases in the Pacific Ocean. On December 7, 1941, Japanese forces attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and other bases. The United States immediately declared war on Japan. Four days later, Hitler declared war on the U.S. In the Reichstag speech in which he declared war, Hitler repeated his claim that Roosevelt was backed by Jews who were intent on destroying Germany. This message was entirely in line with his conspiratorial anti-Semitism and would be amplified and repeated to the public by the propaganda ministry as a way of explaining the war as it widened and dragged on. Hitler's declaration struck many observers then and since as impulsive, even irrational. But not acting would hardly have comported with Hitler's self-image as a leader destined to return Germany to greatness. In more concrete terms, the declaration would serve as a welcome distraction from the situation on the Eastern Front. Japan's stunning series of victories in Southeast Asia and in late 1941 and early 1942 only confirmed the wisdom of Hitler's decision in his mind. He believed, not incorrectly, that the need to fight Japan would prevent an exclusive Anglo-American focus on defeating Germany first. 1942 was the war's darkest year. Winston Churchill would later call the period the hinge of fate. In early 1942, in February, as Japanese forces closed in on Singapore, the British writer George Orwell described a terrifying scenario in a radio broadcast. He predicted that the center of the world might soon become India. Here's what he said, and I'm quoting George Orwell. The general plan is for the Germans to break through by land so as to reach the Persian Gulf, while the Japanese gain mastery of the Indian Ocean. The Germans and Japanese have evidently staked everything on this maneuver, in the confidence that if they can bring it off, it will have won them the war. If Singapore is lost, India becomes, for the time being, the center of the war. One might say, the center of the world. But that year, the tide of the war turned. 
By May 1945, Soviet forces had conquered Berlin, Germany was occupied, and Hitler was dead. I'll talk about how the Allies won in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Be well and take care of each other.